Well, are you ready to receive the word of God tonight? I've been studying deeply for several weeks on a passage that's kind of been a favorite of mine, but uh, it has come back to my heart. I was preparing to do this at one time, maybe a month or so ago, and the Lord just said, no, that's not ready to move through you yet in the way that I would like it to. So put that on the shelf, and I did another thing for that night, and I believe we honored the Lord that night. So it's out of Lamentations. It's Lamentations 3, verses 22 through 24. Let's just go there together. And I really believe that God has something deep for us to see out of this passage from his word. I believe God wants to reveal Jesus to us tonight in a deeper way. Uh, the songs were perfect. I didn't talk to the worship team about their, their songs. And when I walked in during rehearsal and she was belting out Jesus at the center, I said, Holy Spirit, you are talking to us and we are all on the same page. And I'm so excited and grateful for that. Are you with me tonight? Thank you, Lord. Are you there to Lamentations 3.22? It's probably not a well-worn part of your Bible. No one wants to go and be bummed out by Lamentations. But let me tell you, there's a gold mine here. Starting at verse 22, let me read this from the New American Standard. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. If you're like me and my wife, as soon as you see the first line of that song, what happens? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. You know that song? His mercies never come to an end. It's like, and sometimes their songs are so embedded, I'm like, can I just disconnect that? Because I want to hear something else. But it's beautiful, and that ministers to you. And because of that association, we might receive something from this that God has, but it might not be the depths of where I'm going to take you tonight. You might want to put on your oxygen masks because we're going deep. So let's talk about this for a second. Love. Some things we think about when we think about love. Affection, tenderness, care. And so this verse at face value, and it's probably on a lot of bookmarks and a lot of magnets and a lot of Bible covers, and there's probably been a lot of devotions written about it. It's of great personal comfort to me, and I hope it is to you. It's a great daily meditation, probably a good declaration when you get out of bed in the morning, wouldn't you say? Despite what you feel, despite what it looks like, and so we could kind of say of this verse, whatever today brings, whatever happens, your love never runs out. Your well of goodness is inexhaustible. And my portion is the Lord. Not the blessings of the Lord. Not what you do for me, Father. But you yourself. It's not the land I inherited it's not a nation, it's not a people, it's not a bank account, but the self-existent, eternal God, Jesus, is my portion. If you could only look at the cross and the blood 
and the nails and know that he did that for you. It would be enough, wouldn't it? And he rose in victory. And maybe instead of thinking about all the things we're struggling to achieve or attain or the prayers that haven't been answered, if we go to that place, wow, your love, it's steadfast. No one can take away that cross. No one can erase that event in history. Redemption has been procured. It is finished. It's not something he does for me now, but literally he is the purpose for my existence. Have you made room for him in your heart? I saw this mini vision as I was worshiping tonight. And it's something you feel when you minister sometimes. It's something you feel when you're trying to lead people into the presence of God. And you, I saw myself taking a match and lighting it and throwing it. And instead of it catching fire, it just goes out. Fizzles. And the Lord said, everyone is supposed to catch on fire. But don't give up. You keep burning for me. You keep staying ablaze. Don't let the lack of response in anyone else change how you carry the fire of the Lord as you walk everywhere. It can be discouraging. It really can. You're wanting to sense and feel that anointing. You're wanting it to catch and spread like wildfire. We want to see revival. We want to see people come and fill this place again. We want to see the altars full of people falling on their face before God, getting healed, weeping, crying, coming in from the streets, delivered from drugs, prostitution. And it's not happening. And we say, how long, O Lord? And I would say, get back into your closet and get on fire and watch what happens. So the author of this book and this verse seems like it's Jeremiah. He doesn't say that, but all indications point that there. But I believe the author has given us an amazing gift. So I want to talk about lamentations. I want to talk about some context. What is a lament? It's a poem. Sounds like what it is. It's a crying out. It's a burden for the condition of things as, as they are. And uh, this is wisdom literature too in, in scripture. There's so much wisdom. It's like the Holy Spirit soaks the writings, the Psalms, the Proverbs. It's wisdom literature. All of scripture is wisdom literature, but these seem to be like, like heavily loaded. Um, and let me paint the picture of, of what this writing, what this came out of. You have to put yourself in the position of the people of Israel, God's chosen people. They had already previously come into God's full promise for them. They inherited the promised land. They had experienced victory after victory. They had already had the anointed King David, a type of Jesus, ruling on the throne. A, a very messianic picture of what Jesus would do. They had reached the epitome of God's promise for them at that time. And what a beautiful experience that would have been. The blessing was theirs, and they lost it. So these poems were written in contrast to that blessing. 
Can you imagine? This seems hopeless, Lord. We've been led into captivity, taken out of our promised land, and now we're complete prisoners. And not only that, the people that are ruling us are complete pagans. They don't love our Lord. They don't know you. They don't respect you. They don't revere you. And so it paints this picture. This verse, if you only read this, you wouldn't get the idea. And so this is why it's this, this like crazy, amazing, bright spot in this picture. That's why I'm trying to paint the contrast there. And it was an outcry. It was an outcry against injustice. But at the same time, the author recognizes that what they were experiencing was of their own doing. They got there because of what they did. And this was the penalty for their love affair with the world and their infidelity against Yahweh. And God warned them, isn't he good that way? Don't do that. Don't worship other gods. I love you, but you need to love me. You need to obey my commands. This isn't going to end well for you. But they went their own way, and so do we sometimes. Yet even in the midst of this, I want to point out that their predicament was still merciful and loving. He could have obliterated his people from off the face of the earth forever and said, I am done with you. That's it. But for his covenant promise. Because he did it once to the whole earth and saved Noah. And I'm sure at this moment he was like, really? You've done this to me again. I'm such a good God. I'm so loving. I'm so merciful. I'm not going to do that. So here's what happens when they end up in this situation for their own good. I believe it was forging in them a deeper desire, a steely determination to focus on the eternal instead of the temporary. We see that in this verse. Yet here's the thing. It wasn't a national recognition. I'm sure all the people weren't crying out like Jeremiah was. I'm sure all the people, some of them probably were comfortable. This is good. I can get used to this. I'm fine. I'm blessed. I made a deal with these pagans and all is well with me. And I can have my little faith and I can live like the world too. So he's lamenting it, but he's prophesying to the eternal truth. And this is what this verse does. He's speaking of a future destiny. He's holding on to the promiser with tenacity and he's being used by the Holy Spirit to speak clearly a very messianic message to the nation of Israel and to all of us, the readers in the future. Now, how many of you have I paint, as I have painted this picture, just be honest with me, did you feel like I was talking about America right now? Feels the same, doesn't it? You need to feel that. Because that's part of what it's showing us. Does it sound like parts of the American church to you? Absolutely. You should see it. You should be concerned. We're on the precipice of the great apostasy. I've been listening to, to leaders and people in the faith who are talking about people they've known for 40 years in the ministry who have not just quit because they were tired, not just backslid a little, but said, no, I'm walking away from Jesus. 
completely. This blows my mind. This should not be. But the Lord's warned us. And so it wouldn't be wrong for us to lament and to cry out to God for the condition we find ourselves in. And I think we should take a cue from Jeremiah and say, we can be weeping prophets for the nation of America and for the state of the church that we find ourselves. I think we're temporarily in captivity to Babylon in more ways than one. We're caught in the earth uh, realm that's under the prince of the power of the air. So literally, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But we fear no evil when we're there and we continue to walk through. And we're longing, we're longing for the full redemption of Christ's return. See, what we know and what we experience is such a tiny taste of what's going to happen when he finally comes. And this is our predicament. But where should our focus be? I believe this passage gives us great hope. I believe we need to look to what the author knew, what the Holy Spirit spoke through this about the covenant God of Israel, how the Holy Spirit knew the end from the beginning. It's a glimpse into the spirit realm. It's a glimpse into the reality of the kingdom of heaven pushing back against this present darkness. I think that Jeremiah, who, who wrote this, probably wrote this, we're not sure. I think he knew the secret to remaining hopeful and steadfast during dark times. If you write a poem like this in the midst of all hell breaking loose, you're onto something. You serve a God no one else understands and no one else knows. Jeremiah 29, 13. See, the Lord said this to him, and speaking to the nation and speaking to us, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And in Jeremiah 33, 3, he said, Call to me, and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. This verse is a beacon of great and mighty things that they couldn't wrap their head around at the time. We're going to look in a minute at how deeply entrenched with the code of Jesus being at the center is really on this thing. So it seems like Jeremiah was on to something, and I want to share this to you because I think this is, this is a good thing to grasp. It isn't what you know presently that means anything. It's not what you know. It's not where you've been. It's what you know prophetically that means everything. It's not what you know in the natural. It's not what you have known, but it's what God is revealing to you now prophetically about him, about his nature, about his plan for you, about his plan for the earth. And it comes directly from the word of God. It's not something you go away and wait for him to say something mystical to you. It's a prophetic revelation of the word of God. And so once God reveals the prophetic truth to you and that this verse is a shining prophetic truth in the midst of this dark reality, then you truly have an anointing from the Holy One. Amen. Right. And you know all things, First John 2.20. 
but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. It's skipping to verse 27. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. I think this shows us that when you have an anointing and you know the end from the beginning, then you declare it in the middle of the mess, in the midst of darkness, and you don't remain silent. And you know what Paul knew from Romans 4.17, that God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Great is his faithfulness. We're in a mess. We did it to ourselves. The end is near, yet I will believe and hold on to and know this as my reality. He wrote this verse. It's a beacon of prophetic hope to the people, and they knew how to read this literature. We don't, we don't read Hebrew. We don't understand the, the, the symbols, the characters. How many of you have even realized that it's from right to left and not left to right? Did you even know that? It is, it is bizarre world compared to English but it's a far superior way to communicate the message of the eternal one. And so here's the thing. Here's a great man of faith and the people of God, and yet it's hidden unless you search for it with all your heart. Romans 11:25 for I do not want you brothers and sisters to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in this promise was to them and many of them reject it Matthew 13:11 and Jesus answered them to you and I hope that's you I hope that's you in this room tonight I hope that's you watching if you're looking, if you want the revelation of Jesus, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. This isn't God being mean and hiding something so that they'll never be saved. This is him saying because their hearts are hard and they're not looking, it's not granted to them. And that's the same for you. Second Corinthians 3.14, but their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. As soon as you see Christ, remember, see Jesus, say Jesus, live Jesus, know Jesus, live Jesus. It is removed in Christ as soon as you accept him. As soon as you look for the trail of crumbs, as soon as you put together all the pieces of the puzzle, there he is. It's Jesus. Jesus said, who do, you, who do men say that I am? And the one that got it, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's right there. And when we put on Christ, when we look for him, we'll see him. So this is some cool stuff about lamentations. I'm going to geek out now on some biblical uh, stuff here. So the first four chapters of the book are laid out as an acrostic. How many know what an acrostic is? It's when you form a word or a saying out of like the first letter of something. And I did a, an acrostic for na my name tonight so that I could share with you. And then a, a little challenge would be make an acrostic out of your name. So J-A-M-E-S. J is Jesus. 
A is aware, M is more, E is every, S is second. So, Jesus aware, more, every second. You read that sentence and you're like, who? If you don't notice that the first letter of every word spells my name, you don't know that James is becoming Jesus more aware every second. Isn't that cool? So, here's what the author of Lamentations does. He takes the entire Hebrew alphabet, 22 letters, and writes all the chapters with 22 verses and starts each verse with the beginning letter to the end in order. And it still reads like this beautiful lament, this intricately woven Hebrew poetry. How many of you think you're up to that task? I'd like to try, but this is amazing to me. So each verse starts with a different Hebrew letter. Each chapter has 22 verses. So you get in this cadence of, I see what you're doing. I see what you're doing. One verse per letter, one verse per letter. All of a sudden, chapter 3, he explodes and says, now I'm going to do three verses per letter. Chapter 3, three verses per letter. He shifts the pattern and says, heads up, I'm going to tell you something here. And this is where our verse is. Isn't that cool? So the only thing that seems unexplicable is after chapter 3, he goes back to one letter per verse, and then chapter 4 just disregards the whole pattern. And some theologians have like racked their brains like, what is this? It's this beautifully ordered thing until the last chapter, and then it's gone. And so some have speculated that it's intentional. It means that um, even man eventually... uh, trying to carry out their own will, they're just going to be a complete mess and they're going to be lost without the Lord and it's going to be really hard to see, you know, or that eventually if you don't choose to follow God, you're going to live forever without him and there is no order and there is no purpose. But that speculation, who knows why, but chapter three is the one where where the money is, where the pay dirt is, where this incredible stuff all starts happening. So something about chapter 3, it's the middle of five chapters in Lamentations. So you have the middle, one, two, three, four, five, two on either side. So I think, I think he's starting to tell us here three is significant. So what is the Hebrew meaning of three? Uh, shalosh, shaloshah, it means harmony, new life, and completeness. So I believe he's beginning to paint this picture, and this verse says it well. But now these clues all around are supporting what's happening here. You have harmony, new life, completeness in the center of what? Brokenness, despair, chaos, rebellion, sin, paganism. And so God in his word, if you're a student of his word, you know that he says things three times a lot. And that means this is really important. It's a theme. It's setting a pattern. It's, it's a st- out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything shall be established. So you get this three going. And think about this. Would we see the picture of worship in heaven? What do they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's three times. So now, 
Think about the acrostic thing. Instead of James being Jesus aware more every second. Now in this chapter, three J's, three A's, three E's, three S's. It's like more, more, more. Bam, 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 bam. I bet you're wondering if I did an acrostic with all those extra letters. I did. Do you want to hear it? It's Jesus, Jehovah Jireh, awesome, almighty, able, earnest, eager, enthusiastically serving, surrendering, and submitting. That's me. That's James. That's the three. So in all total, chapter three has 66 verses. Can you think of anything that contains 66 of anything? The entire canon has how many books in the Bible? 66. So the emphasis is is the message of this chapter, I believe, is central to the entire book. The placement of this verse is strategic by the Holy Spirit. He's revealing this thing that I'm telling you is central to the entire theme of Scripture, even before we had the New Testament. That blows my mind. I think that's cool. I don't think that's reaching. I think that's totally there. So there's 66 books in the Bible. There's 66 verses in this chapter. Only the Holy Spirit can such, do such a foretelling. And what is six? It's the number of man, and it's the number of man twice, but man authored the scriptures by the Holy Spirit breathing them through man. And what is Jesus? He's fully what and fully what? Fully God, fully man. For redemption, for the plan of God, you have to have both. Did you know in eternity we're not turning into Casper the ghost? We're going to be fully spirit, fully alive in new created bodies. So, cool stuff. I'm going to keep plowing. If I run out of time, it'll just be, that's it, the end. I'll give you my notes. So, um, in the Tanakh, the original Hebrew Bible, I started trying to line these, um, these number symbolisms up, and I thought, boy, wouldn't it be cool if it turned out that Lamentations was in the middle of the Bible? Well, it isn't. We know that. Then I thought, well, maybe if I look at the chronological instead of the traditional order, strike out again. I was like, oh, man, that would have been really cool if I could find this here. But what I uncovered is even better than that. So in the original Hebrew Bible, the order of the books is is different than our current Old Testament. So this is cool. Lamentations is actually in the middle book in the third grouping of these scrolls. What has this been telling us this whole time? Three, 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 middle, middle, middle. Three, 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 middle, middle, middle. So group one is Psalms, Proverbs, and Job. The middle group is Song of Songs, Ruth. Then Lamentations, smack dab in the middle. Then you have Ecclesiastes and Esther. And then the final group is Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Chronicles. So this verse is in the middle of the middle book, in the middle of the third group of the scrolls in the Hebrew Bible. I think that's by design. Jesus is the center. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Are you okay? Your mind's not exploding? Because I'm going to keep geeking out here. 
So the number three is harmony, completeness, and unity. But we're going to start seeing a different pattern with the number eight. And so, verse 22, Lamentations 3, remember he changes the pattern to 3333. So verse 22 is the eighth grouping of three in the Hebrew alphabet. So now we look at why is this the eighth? So, did some deep dive study, blew my mind. The number eight in Hebrew is formed by bridging together the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet and the seventh letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So you look at this number eight and you actually see six and seven and eight. And again, you have man, six, seven, God, eight, the new creation. So check this out. So six is the number of man. It's bridged together with seven, which is the completed work of creation. We know that God rested on the seventh day, Sabbath rest. But the eighth day is something different. Did you know that? The eighth day is a different kind of rest. It's not Sabbath. It's not Shabbat. It's Nuach. It's rest and rule and reign, and it's what's going to happen after the consummation of all things when Jesus comes back after all the horrible stuff in Revelation, that's where you get to. And here in the middle of the middle of the middle is this eight saying there's hope. It's coming. And you can experience it now. So the new heavens and the new earth, the glorified, totally restored, real-life version of heaven and earth, that's nuach, rest. So in other words, this verse is kind of a type or a picture of the final resting place, the truth of the gospel for all eternity. So we come to Lamentations 3.22, and now it is, because we know that the letter 6 and 7 form 8, so now it's 888. Because it's three times, remember the letter's three times, so it's 8 three times, 888. Didn't someone live at 888 Somerset? That was pretty important, wasn't it? In the, in, the, in the desire to live there. And so back to our verse, it's, you probably don't have to throw it up there, but so verse 22, it'd be, there it is. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. That's the first eight. The second eight, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Then 24, the third eight, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. I love how these things kind of say the same thing, but then they just say it differently. And it's just bam, bam, bam. Truth, truth, truth. Take it to the bank. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. 888, rest, rest, rest. Rule, rule, rule. Reign, reign, reign in Christ Jesus. This is how we should be living life now today in this Babylon, in this pagan culture. So let's, let's talk about eight, and so you understand that this is intentional by the Holy Spirit, and this is intentional by the Word of God. Circumcision, eighth day. God saved eight people on the ark to, to restart creation, so that was a picture of Jesus and a picture of Nuach. Peter said in his letter, he called Noah the eighth man, a preacher of righteousness. Counting from Passover to resurrection, Jesus actually rose on the 
eighth day. After seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles, the eighth day is the last great day. That was prophetic of the eighth day. Jesus started the eighth day when he rose again, but we're walking into it and we'll experience fully eventually. So, just to finally explode your mind further, the letters of the name of Jesus in Greek add up to the number 888. What do you think about that, Bob? (laughs) You're taking it in, aren't you? So from the Septuagint, Yeshua, into Greek, Lesus, or Jesus, the healer, 888. I'm so glad you sang that song about Jesus again tonight, and I'm so, so glad we sang Jesus at the center. And as far as I'm concerned, we can sing that name of Jesus song every Sunday for, for the next however long. Because that's what it's about. That's who it's about. So he's getting our attention here, this number. And without all this numerology stuff, if you look around here, he actually quotes Psalm 69, Job 3, and Isaiah 53, if you look those up. Those are all so messianic, the prophecy. It's, it's, it's clear. So he's littering this trail. He's like dropping bread crumb, crumbs in the forest. It's like Reese's Pieces for E.T., you know, like come and get it. And the people of God, the Hebrew people, had to see this. How hard is your heart? How blind are you? When Jesus finally comes and says, this is me. I've done this. I'm doing this. So it's making a messianic point. So there's something cool about this verse that isn't in all the translations. And I want to talk about this this idea that it says we are not consumed. We hear about the loving kindness. We talk about the, the compassion, the tender mercies. So we don't have a little kid anymore. She's 12, breaking my heart. But we still have tender mercies and compassion and love. But you think of the little baby, like, oh, it's so tender. I love you. It's so sweet. You wouldn't want to do any harm. But we don't think of those tender mercies as the only thing stopping us from obliterating that child from the face of the earth. But that's what this verse is saying. The wrath of Almighty God for the sin of people against him is an all-consuming fire. And the only thing that keeps you and I from experiencing that is Jesus. That's the tender mercies and the love. So here's what we need to see. The Hebrew literal writing of this verse 22, it sounds like this. And it's bizarre because we don't think this way or read this way. It says, The mercies of Yahweh that not we are consumed because not fail his compassions. That's how you would read it. That's how you would absorb it and take it in. The mercies of Yahweh that not, what's in the middle? We are consumed (laughs) because not fail his compassions. So we're literally surrounded by his mercies and his compassions. When we think we're surrounded by everything else, we, when we think sin and death has surrounded us and swallow us up, it's a lie. We are not consumed. We deserve to die, but we won't die. So Lamentations 3.22, NIV uses this phrase, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. 
Great is thy faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. I looked up the word consumed in the Hebrew. It means have not meant our end will not cause to cease. So the author here, this is great wordplay. His love, his tender mercies never end so that we won't meet our end. How clever is that? His tender mercies never end so that we won't meet our end. He's never ending so that we can be never ending. He's eternal so that we can enjoy eternal life with him. We should be consumed. We deserve to be consumed, but we're not consumed. God is an all-consuming fire. As a jealous God, his nature as holy and perfect must deal with sin. Hebrews 12, 26. Everyone still doing good? Can I go to 8.30? Okay. Just stay with me. And his voice shook the earth, but then he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let's show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable servants with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. I pray that the reverence and the awe of an all-consuming God would be restored to the church in America. I pray that we would come in here and, and feel the presence of an almighty God. That we would be drawn once again to live a holy separate life, to truly live righteous lives, to realize the, the truth of what we're seeing here. So if we find ourselves in the middle of this great shaking, we're in the right place. We're not just called to receive this text. It's like, thank you, Pastor James, for doing this study and, and giving this to me. I'm blessed. We are called to be this text. You're not just called to know this and love this and put it on your fridge. You're called to be this. You are this verse. This is your life. Romans 12, 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We need to find ourselves in the center with him, in the middle of lamentations, being the blessed who mourn in Zion and being comforted and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are living lights and intercessors of Lamentations 3, 22 through 24, in the midst of this eternal promise of God regarding his consuming fire. I'm going to go back to Deuteronomy 5.9. If you didn't know it, this verse I'm about to read, glad you didn't throw it up there. She's like, see, he talks before the verses, so I'm going to wait and throw it up. You know me, that's my wife. This is the most quoted verse in Scripture by other authors of Scripture. This one I'm about to read. That should say something. The scripture you're about to, to see is the most repeated throughout scripture. So we need to look at it. I say, why is this? Deuteronomy 5, 9, you shall not worship them nor serve them, idols, false gods, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
an all-consuming fire, inflicting the punishment of the fathers and the children, even on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing favor to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Remember, the author of Lamentations was feeling the wrath of the punishment of the fathers to the children for the generations of disobedience and rebellion. But in the midst of that, showing favor to thousands. This still happens today. There are generational God-haters. Did you know that? And to be a God-hater, you don't need to go around and blaspheming and, and act, you know, like a crazy person. You just have to worship other gods. That should bring conviction to the church. God says you hate me if you worship other gods. But for Jesus, we would be doomed. So the blind spots of the Father seem to manifest in the sons until the cycle is broken. Until someone says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Until someone speaks up and says, this is the truth about Jesus. This is the truth of God's word. This is how you escape this. Jeremiah 17 again said, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? There's a lie going around that says people are basically good. We're all good. If we just come to the highest elevation of humanity, we can solve our problems. The Bible says otherwise. Because of the fall in the garden, sin has corrupted your heart and it's deceitful and you can't trust. Desperately wicked. He says, who really knows how bad it is? But the cycle can be broken anytime by repentance. There's always going to be people that continue to reject God and those that decide to worship and follow him. I want to be the worshiper and follower of Jesus. I want to be the lover of Jesus. I want to make sure that there's nothing in my life that would grieve the heart of God. James, why, why are you messing with that? Why are you pursuing that? Why would you waste time on that? It's an idol. It has you. It has your affection. It has your love. You can't give me all of your heart if you give a piece of it to that. And God's wrath against my sin was poured out on Jesus on the cross. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Remember, we need to find ourselves in modern Babylon. And so, knowing this verse, the reality of this in the center, of the center, in the center, living prophetically with a prophetic revelation of this, we can relate to Isaiah, and it was a call to him, and it's a call to us, Isaiah 6, 5 through 7. Then I said, Woe to me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and atonement is made 
for your sin. Apart from Jesus, we perish with our sin nature. But in Christ, the fire refines us and purifies us to be more like him. I want that coal. I want to keep going back to that holy place where my lips are burned to speak only the holy name of Jesus, to speak only the truth of his word. We actually want God to be true to his word. We want him to be consistently faithful. If he goes against his word, he's a liar and he's not faithful at all. He has to punish sin and ultimately those that reject God finally have to be punished. That's not hate speech. That's love speech. That's love speech. Everyone has an opportunity to find and follow God. I don't know how that works. I don't know how the indigenous people of some random island who's never read the Bible comes to know Jesus, but God's word says they will have an opportunity, so I believe it. I heard someone say today, you've probably heard of the testimonies of Muslims having dreams where Jesus basically comes to them and says, I'm Jesus, you need to follow me. You're in a mess. It's happening all the time now. But I just heard a report today. Gatherings where people are involved in the occult. You just talked about cults. There was a recent gathering where this giant voice came in the room and said, I am the Lord Jesus. Choose a side. How much does he love us? He's coming soon, church. This is where we need to be. This verse is what we need to live. Skipping down. It's as though he's saying to us, I will burn away with veracity whatever it is that has been established as an idol before me. And if you don't know you have any, all you need to do is get it quiet in his presence and say, just take it, Lord. Touch me with that coal. Burn it away. I don't want anything else. And he's saying, I will purge it out of you, out of your immediate generations who by worshiping idols love other gods and turn their back on me so that my covenant blessing will stand strong as a tree of life, establishing and keeping my covenant blessing to the people and the nations who love me and serve me. People talk about this verse a lot and there's confusion in the translation. Is it a thousand generations? Well, how is there hope for any of us if our forefathers, the thousands, we're, we're all cursed. But it's only the generations who are God-haters. As soon as you say, I'm not a God-hater, I'm a God-lover, you're out. You're not cursed, you're redeemed from that. It's lifted, it's broken. You need to pray that and speak that over your family. It doesn't matter what your great-grandparents did. You're not paying for that. When you go through the blood of Jesus and denounce that and declare that that is broken off me. We can walk in divine favor. See, his jealousy is a fire that consumes the wicked and defends the righteous. That should encourage you. I've got a fiery God on my side. If I keep in step with him, I follow him, if I obey him, who cares who's against me? Bring it on. Death, torture. I'm not taking the mark. I'm not joining your economy. I'm not worshiping man. Second Corinthians 4, 7. 
but we have this treasure in earthen containers so that the extraordinary greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. As I read the rest of it, I want you to think the verse we're talking about, the predicament they were in, the predicament we're in. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Why? How does this take place? Always carrying around in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body, in the center, in the middle, in the rest of God, in the 888, in the whatever acrostic you come up with your name. His love is written on your heart. Let's look at the verse one final time, Lamentations 3.22. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. I want to encourage you tonight. I hope you never see this verse the same again. I hope this inspires you to richly dive into the Word of God like you never have before and see the things that He has for you there as you chew on it, as you meditate it, as you mutter it, as you study, as you declare it. Can we do something right now just for a brief period of time before I pray and, and end the, the teaching part of the service? Let's just take like a full two minutes and just really invite Jesus to be the center. Reflect on the richness of this passage, the revelation of what he's done, his love for all creation, his signs everywhere pointing to Jesus died, crucified, resurrected for us. Get rid of all the chaos, the short attention span, and let's just go there right now.
So here's the challenge before us. We live in noise. We're saturated. The pace of culture is insane. And we don't do what we just did corporately. I hope we can intentionally do this more. But you're not doing it privately. You're, let, you're falling asleep to the news. You're waking up to someone's life event on Facebook. Your phone is going off because it is our master. Shut it off. Get out of the craziness. Start hearing from the Lord. Start finding your center in Him. Take time. Choose wisely. I believe God wants us to be prepared, to be sold-out believers like never before, to be righteous and holy like never before, to hold on to a kingdom that is unshakable in the midst of great shaking. And this verse should be an anchor, a tool in your belt that you pull out and face off against the enemy. You're lying to me. There's hope for me. I'm not forgotten. My God is faithful. His mercies are in my life. His loving kindness. He loves me so much instead of destroying me. He destroyed his son, and now I'm in relationship with him. Oh, this is so good. It's so powerful. We are entertained. We need to hear things in a new and exciting way. But we need to stop falling for that. Right down there tonight, something shifted in my understanding about the way I minister, and the Lord said, you minister to me. You minister to me. I will take care of them. I've gotten in my head about writing the perfect sermon, about having the right joke here, about making all the connecting points and reaching the culture and this and this and that. And he said, you minister to me, James. Let me minister through you. Would you allow me to do that? And I think we'd all be better off if we lived that way too. Let me just close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this word. Thank you for your word forever settled in heaven. It's so rich. It's so good to us. Just stir our hearts. Again, the, the faith that we have, the belief, so great a salvation, Lord. Pray that we'd all begin to burn brightly and that we come into this room, we burn together. And it's like a big bonfire for the glory of God and that people from all around here have to come and see what's going on. What is that bright light in Tom's River, in Ocean County, in the middle of Babylon, in the middle of the mess, in the middle of chaos and rebellion 
and sin and sickness. Send them in from the north, the south, the east, and the west, Lord. Forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Break the bonds of pettiness, the offenses. Let us look unto you, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and let us run for the prize like never before in this day. I thank you for it, Lord. I pray that you meet everyone here tonight at their point of need that Jesus, you reveal to them you're their healer, you're their strength, you're, you're their financial provider, you're the restorer of broken relationships. And I pray that people would be so in love with your church that they couldn't wait to get here and they couldn't wait to fellowship with other believers. And that would be the motivation of our entire life until you come again, Jesus. I thank you for it. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to minister tonight. Thank you for those that have listened. I pray the seed goes down and brings a harvest. I rebuke the enemy from stealing it from anyone's heart tonight. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.